I can put on my teacher voice, but that starts tomorrow, so I don't want to start now. Um, how is everyone? Good? It's good to be back here. Um, Pete's been a little bit misleading, because I was under the impression that Bankstown was the younger congregation. So I thought I was going to come as like the hipster, but you're probably like distracted by my wrinkles. Um, anyway, um, I do want to re- reiterate uh, what Dan, please don't confuse me with the other Dan. You can come to me, talk to me about Nepal after, and I'll make some things up. Um, but I do want to reiterate, um, I work at a Christian school teaching the Bible, and the, the large majority of new students at the school are Hindu coming to this Christian school. And I have to you know, figure out as a Bible teacher how to proclaim the gospel to Hindus, right? And it's, it's all around us. So um, I just want to reiterate what he was saying and, and just point out that this, we're in a mission field, um, especially in Australia, especially in Sydney. Um, so yeah, preaching on Ruth chapter 2. Um, there are two types of character fanatics. The first type is the more common type. That's the type that wants to be like the character that you're a fanatic about. All right, so can I have a show of hands if you have had a character at some stage in your life, you want to be like that character? Okay. Pete only, all right. Um, the other type of character fanatic is the, other, the type that actually thinks they are the character they're fanatical about. All right, so I spent a lot of my life thinking I was some kind of variation of a Pokemon, all right, until I got married. Um, <laughs> I had to grow up. Um, has anyone actually legitimately thought they were a character that they were fanatic about? Come on. Only me? Okay, which... No, no. <laughs> I'm not going to ask. Um, but at, at one stage, of, so I was uh, living with my family when I was younger in someone else's house. We were like transitioning between two houses. And at this stage, uh, I had just watched Disney's rendition of Tarzan. And for some weird reason, I... Th- I was legitimately convinced that I was Tarzan for a while. Um, so they had this like grove near the house, and I would go to the grove and I would pretend to be a monkey, I guess. And uh, I, was, I was persuaded that I was Tarzan. Um, and we moved houses, and uh, I was walking along street, Queen Street in Campbelltown. I thought I was Tarzan, right? And I'm not even joking, I was walking down the street and this bent over old lady walks past me and I'm just walking past her. And this lady stops and looks at me. I don't, never met her before. And I looked at her. She pointed her finger at me and she said, Tarzan. <laughs> what? So I was like, I'm Tarzan. Oh my goodness. Now can, can someone... What? No. I can't... So can someone explain that biblically to me, that story? Because I, I, can't, I can't figure it out. So anyway, I was persuaded that I was Tarzan. Uh, next story. I'm going to leave that behind. Um, became a Christian. Uh, at that point, I uh, don't remember what it was. Um, became a Christian, and as soon as I became a Christian, I started walking, um, and sort of walking and praying in the mornings. And I'd walk every morning. I'd walk my dog for maybe two hours, an, an hour, two hours in the morning before going to school. Or, and... Um, Always loved walking, but I never walked at night. I always got really tired at night. Never, ever walked at night. One night, I uh, was sitting on the lounge. I was sort of getting ready for bed. And I felt an urge to walk. So I'm like, okay, 
just going to go for a walk. So I got ready and started walking. And as I was walking, I felt the urge to walk. Like I would have a normal sort of route around Bradbury, so I'd walk every single time. Sometimes I'd go into the bush. But I felt to, does anyone know, like Bradbury, Campbelltown, Norellan, Camden, lots of sh- no's. Yes, yeah, the real southwest, okay. Um, but I, I had a, an urge to walk up Norellan Road. That's a huge road. It's like an hour to get up Norellan Road, okay. By this stage, it's about 12 o'clock at night, okay. So I'm like, okay, I'll do it, because I was that kind of person. And so I'm walking up Norellan Road, and going, why am I here? And it's pitch black, obviously, because it's 12 o'clock. And uh, across New Island Road, uh, I kind of saw in the back of my eye a lady walking, a young woman walking up the road. And she looked really scared. So I was like, okay, what's happening? And then I just kept walking. She crosses the road and like, she starts walking next to me. I'm like, are you okay? She's like, oh, someone was like, following me. And I was, I'm really scared. Can you just stay with me? So I'm like, okay, I'll stay with you. So I walked her all the way up New Island Road. And uh, walked her to her house, gave her 10 bucks, and said goodbye. That's it, and then went home. Um, okay, next story. <laughs> Got married. Uh, I have three wonderful boys, Calvin, Owen, and Lewis. And uh, I swear that we're good parents. Um, but like one time, I was um, <laughs> um, we were just about to go outside the house and, and play in the, in the backyard. And we're just putting their shoes on. And he had gumboots. And I was, putting his, I was putting Calvin's shoes on. I just had just like the slightest hint, hint or hunch that I should look inside his shoe. And I kind of glimpsed, and I saw like the glimmer of a spiderweb. So I'm like, I should look inside his shoe. And so I knocked his shoe out, and a huge redback spider came out of the shoe. Huge redback spider. And he had no socks on, so I would have like just put his shoes on. So, like, my heart is something. I'm like, what happened if I didn't look inside that shoe? What's going on? I just had this hunch. Okay. Next story. Another time, I was, I was just walking from my house to, from my room to my kitchen. And uh, as I walked past my room to the kitchen, in the corner of my eye, I saw Calvin, and he had pulled a Ziploc bag over his head, and his face was red, and he couldn't get it off. And I was the only one there. So I just... Like, just saw it walking past. And so I pulled it off. Imagine if I didn't walk past. Yeah. So that's four stories. Forget the first one. Okay? Because I've got no idea how to explain that one. Um, my question here is, what, what of these stories shows more of the marks of providence? Okay, in it. Um, when I say providence, I mean God's secret working in the life of his people or in the life of the world to bring about his purposes. God's secret working in the life of the world to bring about his purposes. You know, we might say, well, the one that I really had a hunch to go for a walk and then, you know, this this thing happened, it was pretty clear that whatever you think about that experience is some kind of providential, you know, I was there to maybe help someone. Right? But the last story is like I wasn't even considered, it wasn't a hunch. I was just walking. You know, what if I wasn't there? What if, I, what if I left my room a minute later, two minutes later? Okay, isn't life filled with these kinds of circumstances? So I'm going to give the, uh, the argument 
today. And when we look at Ruth 2, I'm going to give you the argument that the author of Ruth uh, considers that uh, providence is going to be a theme that uh, he's going to uh, sort of imply and put in this story. Um, so we're going to look at this uh, in terms of the, the book of Ruth. We're going to sort of trace it through there. And then uh, we're, going to, we're going to go into four marks of providence. Okay? How do we glean from the book of Ruth about this idea of providence, God's secret working to bring about his great purposes uh, in history? Uh, does that sound interesting to you? No? Okay, good. Um, let's pray, and then we'll get into the book of Ruth. Father, thank you for uh, today. Thank you for loving us and for um, bringing us here, even providentially, to hear your word and to hear that um, even maybe in the normal, everyday situations of life, that you're working in our lives. God, I pray for this congregation. I thank you that um, it's thriving and it's, and it's going forward. And I just keep praying for our churches. I keep praying that uh, you would be um, ministering to us by your spirit and teaching us uh, many things about yourself. I pray that you'd open our eyes today to learn from your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> That's great. Um, First thing, first way I'm going to do this is I'm going to say, uh, make an argument from the uh, intention of the author. We don't often think about this when we come to a book of the Bible, but it's actually vital when you're thinking about how do we read a book of the Bible. We we should at least stop and think about what's who's the author and why is the author writing. And sometimes it changes the way we actually see uh, stories in the book. For example, Genesis. Who was Genesis written by? We say, okay, Moses, right? Obviously, other things happen after that. But we're talking about Moses, you know, and uh, writing down these accounts for Israel coming out of, the, uh, out of Egypt into the Promised Land. I wonder if uh, any of us have thought about the, um, the flood story and connected it to Israel coming out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. It's like it's not something that would pass our minds. But if you're an Israelite and you've just, crossed, you've just crossed the Red Sea and you've seen the floods coming crashing down on God's enemies, right? Uh, and this has been your experience in life. And then you start talking about the flood of Noah what's, and, and, and the flood coming crashing down on God's enemies, right? What's going to be in the forefront of your mind? It's going to be the Red Sea. So it's interesting when you start thinking about, okay, what's the situation? What's the audience? It might change things. How many commandments are there? in the creation account, Genesis 1. There's actually 10. Hmm, 10 commandments. And we don't sort of pick these things up, but if you're a Jew and you're just you know, at, the, at Sinai and you're getting the 10 commandments and then you're hearing about this story about, about creation, a Jew is going to pick this kind of thing up. So it's important to see uh, the, the, uh, the intention of it. Now, Ruth is an interesting one because it's a bit harder to place, but we know by the end of the story that it was after David... Okay, so we've got the judges, and the time of judges is Ruth. Right, we've got Saul, and we've got, uh, we've got King David. Right? And the story talks about King David, so it's uh, written after King David. Right? And probably it's before Israel goes into exile. So there's, there's less marks of something being written uh, post-exile here. So if we situate it, we're, we're probably situating it somewhere like Solomon's reign before they go into exile. 
Okay? Which is interesting because it makes Ruth, this little story, it seems like you know, the life of a, a foreign woman. It seems like um, a, a short, very simple story. It might actually be a political story. It might actually be a story that is trying to persuade people of the legitimacy of King David's line, of Solomon's line. Now, that actually might change the way we see and read the book. And in particular, if we see a theme like providence traced through the book of of Ruth, uh, we might see it as something like this. The author is trying to persuade people that even though we can see the, the legitimacy of King David's line legally, it's actually God who brought about this history and God who brought about the, the, the stories in David's history to bring about his kingship so that his kingship is legitimate not just in the law but under God. It's an interesting perspective, isn't it? So my argument is that uh, the writer, probably a scribe, wants to have this theme of providence in, in the book of Ruth in order to persuade people okay, about the, the, uh, maybe David's claim. So with that in mind, let's quickly go through uh, the book. We'll go through chapter 1 and briefly and chapter 2. Um, I won't spoil the next two sermons. Um, but let's uh, have a look at this uh, as we go. So open your Bibles. Let's go to Ruth chapter 1 very quickly. And let's uh, sort of consider the storyline here. So Ruth chapter 1, in the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. Okay. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to Moab and lived there. Now, the writer doesn't say, who is the story about? It's given characters, but it's, it's uh, not clear. We have the book of Ruth, okay? So it kind of gives it away, but that's not the original title. The original title is something like the first couple of letters of the book, so in the days, that's the original title. So we don't know who the, who the book is about. Whose story is this? Um, verse 3, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with two sons. They married a Moabite woman named Orpah, uh, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And they had lived there about 10 years. Both Marlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay. So Naomi and her two daughters are widows in a famine. So they're in dire trouble. They can't provide for themselves. So when she heard that in Moab, the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. So here we get a glimpse. This is God's sort of um, direction, not only of, of people, but here of, uh, of, of uh, famine and, and relief from famine here. Yeah. Naomi and her daughters are prepared to return. Okay. Um, now we'll see later, but uh, Deuteronomy 24 I won't go there in terms of time, but uh, in the law of Moses, okay, if you are an Israelite um, and you're, you're gleaning your field, okay, you're getting your wheat and you drop some wheat, okay, you're not meant to go back and pick it up. You're meant to leave it there so that the foreigner or the widow 
or the poor can come after you, follow after you, and, and pick up the, the grain. Now, here's Naomi, a widow. She's in a foreign land, right? And she returns to her people. And where is, where is the best place for a widow or a, or a foreigner or a stranger to be? It's actually with God's people because there is provision in the law for them. That's an important point. So they go back to uh, the hometown, but notice the uh, return. She goes back. They say, this is Naomi, verse 20. Uh, don't, call me Na- don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. So Naomi's mind, okay? Naomi believes in providence, but God is making her life very bitter. So let's go into chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabiter, said to him, Let me, uh, now, we don't, uh, we know that, so the author's telling us that, but the characters don't know this, right? And Ruth doesn't know this, so the author's speaking to us. And Ruth said to Naomi, Let me go into the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I favor. So she's carrying out what she knows to be her right under the law. Naomi said, oh, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. Now, don't think of this as, okay, you've got your, I don't know, what's a, what's a common farm? Bigger? What's a farm? Anyway, and, you got, and it's like all fenced out, and you know where you are, right? This is, big, this is, this is bigger or whatever. And then you can go to this farm, then you go to the next farm, and that's all fenced out, and it's just like cleared, like deliminations, right? What we're looking at here is a bunch of farms, a bunch of fields, undefined, no fences, right? And there's people working, and here Ruth is going to start following after the people gleaning and pick up up. Now, she's a foreigner, okay? Um, the reality is she's in trouble, and she can be uh, harmed or mistreated by the the workers, okay? But think about this situation. She's just going into, she's going to start following these random people and going to these fields, all right? So this is where the author, the scribe, starts showing us um, that it's not just Ruth doing what, she, what she's doing, but there's things behind the scenes. So have a look at here, uh, verse 3, halfway through. So fields behind the harvesters, right? And as it turned out, okay, now we might pass over that. Right, the original is something like uh, her chance chanced upon. Okay, it just so happened. So it's like a not so subtle hint that more is going on in the scene. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz. Okay, who was from the clan of Elimelech, her father-in-law. Uh, just, then, just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted. So Boaz is coming from Bethlehem. Ruth is there. We know later Ruth had a little sort of break, a little lunch break. Okay? But just at this right time, there's an orchestration here of, of moments where Ruth is there, the workers are there. Boaz comes, comes back from Jerusalem and says, I'm going to go say hello to my workers. And they're all there at the same time. And so here Boaz says, what, what's... Uh, what's this uh, foreign woman following us? And it turns out uh, how the story goes. Yeah. Now, 
So uh, Boaz is, is kind to her, wants to protect her, tells his workers not to harm her. Okay, uh, Go down to uh, verse 11. Boaz uh, replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Um, Flick across to chapter 4 and verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. As I said, I'm assuming you have uh, read the book of Ruth. I'm not going to get into spoilers, but... Here it's important to know that Boaz eventually took Ruth and became, she became his wife. And he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive. She gave birth to a son. Okay. Uh, verse 16. Uh, Naomi took the child later in the lap and, called and cared for him. The, the women living there said, Naomi has a son. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So here we have subtle, but not so subtle, signs that the author is saying, look what's happening in this story. There's lots of things going on, but there's chance meetings, and these chance meetings are in a greater story because she was the mother of Obed, and Obed was the mother of Jesse, Jesse was the mother of David, our king. Okay, so it's... It's God's providence, his secret working in history to bring about his purposes right? that brought about King David's birth. Now, we know as Christians, of course, that David is not the end of the story. Okay, whose story is this? It's not Ruth's story. It's not Naomi's story. It's not Boaz's story. The scribe thought it was David's story, but we know, don't we? Okay, this is Jesus' story. So let's uh, step back, and I want us to uh, think about this in terms of what we can learn and glean about providence, God's providence, from the book of Ruth. Okay, I'm going to say this uh, this fourth. There's lots of things that we can think about, but I'm going to point out four things uh, if you're writing things down. Uh, Number one, I'm going to say it's hidden. Number two, it includes suffering. Number three, it includes suffering human decisions. And number four, I'm going to talk about providence and the foreigner. Providence and the foreigner. So let's look at these four things. So number one, it's hidden. Uh, And I'm going to say redeeming the unremarkable. Um, The other day I was uh, uh, clearing out some stuff and we had to clear out our garage. And we got like when I say we, I'm going to, I mean my wife, has like piles and piles and piles of university lecture, lectures in its folders, like heaps. I've got like three folders of the university lectures. Okay? And we just, we, we just like throw them all out. You know when you're cold and it's like, I'm just going to throw everything out, right? Um, and it was like, both of us were, were like going through this moment, right? It's like, we're just feeling having a little, it's like, is this, does this time really matter? It just feels like it's just, you know, I spent all these years studying all these notes and I just like throw them all out, never use them again. It seems sometimes like the day by day seems pretty unremarkable, doesn't it? Seems pretty average. Think about uh, Ruth's life. 
We hear about a couple of stories in her life. Ten years passes, unremarkable life. We think about these small glimpses, but think about her life as a whole. It's pretty unremarkable. Okay? So one thing we can learn about providence, it's hidden. The writer hides it, doesn't he? The scribe is hiding it. It's like it's hinting, but that's how providence works. We almost have to look for the signs of providence. Okay? So um, as I go through these points, um, actually gonna, I'm going to sort of pray um, because I think all of these points we can actually bring to God and we can actually uh, think about these things as being redeemed because now what I'm going to say is that uh, providence actually redeems these things and, and the first thing it redeems is the unremarkable. So some of us are struggling a little bit with an unremarkable life, the day-to-day, and it feels like ah, it's just, uh, feels like it's wasted. So I'm going to pray really quickly just about um, bringing our unremarkable lives to God and, think, and, and knowing that he's redeeming our unremarkable lives by providence. So just, let's just do that. So just, uh, Father, thank you that uh, even in our day-to-day, which seems so unremarkable, which seems so average, that most of our life seems so normal. Thank you, Lord, that you don't forget about those moments, but you're using each moment to bring about your great purposes in our life. Amen. Number two, it includes suffering, doesn't it? Think about this. Uh, the beginning of Ruth. Okay. Of course, how does the story start? Naomi's married. Two wonderful sons. They have wives. She's building a family. She's in a foreign land. And her husband dies. And her children die. Okay. I don't think, I mean, you can't conceive of any greater grief that a mother can experience or a wife can experience that, you know, this, this is the, the greatest of suffering. You can see them weeping and you can see Ruth is, uh, sorry, Naomi is, is finished. She comes back to her land and says, don't call me Naomi. God's taken everything from me. Naomi never figures out what the author knows and what we know. She doesn't know that. She just thinks that God has brought about all this suffering on her and her life is finished. Some of us have the same experience. So let's, let's bring our suffering here. And uh, you know, I just want to reiterate this point here in, in, chapter, in chapter 2, um, that, that Ruth, at least, was coming and, and uh, taking refuge under the shadow of his wings. And I'm going to say that under the shadow of his wings, suffering is redeemed by providence. Suffering is not wasted. Okay? I think we should all know and remember the quote by Richard Dawkins, who's an atheist, and his famous quote, and we should all engage with it, because he says that this world is the exact, exactly this kind of world you would expect where we've just got these impersonal forces, these things happening, it's just science, right? Um, it's the kind of world we expect. And what does he say? There's, there is no good, no evil in this world, right? No purpose, 
Just indifference, just blind indifference. It's Dawkins. Okay? And we must, as Christians, of course, reject this worldview. Right? Because we as Christians do not actually believe in chance. Right? Or randomness. And it's not indifferent. There's good and evil, but also that our suffering is not random. Right? There's actually purpose in our suffering. So as we bring this to God, probably it's closer to home, isn't it? Um, especially someone like Naomi, who's lost her husband, lost her children. So let's, let's bring this quickly just uh, before God. Let's just bring our suffering to God and offer it up to his providence. So Father, um, even this time, we think about um, not just the everyday life that seems futile or seems normal, but those moments in our life where there is great sorrow and suffering. And it's so much harder in those times to think that you have it all under control, that, that you are using this for your purposes. But we think about Romans 8, we think about you know, God is bringing all things together for good for those who love the Lord according to his purposes. So, Lord, we bring our sorrow to you, we bring our suffering to you, and we, we lay it at your feet. We come under the shadow of your wings, knowing that our suffering is redeemed by providence. Amen. Um, so, number one, it's, it's hidden. So, we've got redeeming the unremarkable. Number two, it includes suffering, right? Um, it redeems our, our sorrow. Um, the other day I was, we, I was with my family and we were doing karaoke, okay? Um, my my uh, Malaysian wife introduced karaoke to us and I introduced it to my family. We never grew up doing karaoke, right? We're very, very uh, Aussie. And um, do Aussies do karaoke? I don't even know. I've never been around Aussies that do karaoke. But we were doing karaoke and we're having a great time. We're just having dinner, right? And we started singing this song about dads. And my mother just, she was, we were just singing and she just broke down. She started weeping. She left the room. I'm like, whoa, what's going on? Um, when she was, um, so when my mother's mother found out that she was pregnant, she was going to tell my mother's father, right? He was up top of a telegraph pole doing some work and he gets electrocuted and, and dies, right? So my mother grew up with this sense that my dad, he didn't even know I existed. She's carried that her whole life. That's, that's suffering, that's sorrow. Right? And we know from Ruth, God redeems this sorrow, this suffering, um, by his providence. It's working together. Individually, we might not have any answers for it. It's working together to bring about his purposes. Okay? Number three, it includes human decisions. So it's hidden, it includes suffering, but it also includes human decisions. Think about, think about the, the amazing amount of human decisions that went through this little situation in Ruth's life. 
Okay, Boaz deciding to walk from Jerusalem. Ruth deciding to, to come and start gleaning from the fields. Just at that time, we read later she had a break. Okay, that's an insignificant thing, but actually, like what if Boaz came on her break? It would have never happened. David would have never happened. King David, if Ruth was having a break a bit earlier or a bit later. Has any of us had a work break, sat down at the work break and thought, hmm, I'm ha- if I, what's happening in this work break that, that, that God is working in? But human decisions, right? Um, there's, a, there's a stream of Christianity that doesn't want to say God's providence is over human decisions. But what, what are we left with then? What kind of a, what kind of a, a, a situation are we left with? God is, God's providence is over what, rocks and donkeys and the sky and God can intervene sometimes, but our, human, our decisions are sort of left to ourselves. Okay, to me that's sort of a quasi-providence, isn't it? Right? And I don't think it's a biblical providence. I think a biblical providence is showing, at least here in Ruth, that all these decisions, all these human decisions, everything leading up to Ruth, everything after Ruth, up to King David, everything after King David, this is God working out his purposes. Right? And I'm going to say that if it includes human decisions, providence redeems our mistakes, doesn't it? Providence redeems our mistakes. And so... It redeems the un- unremarkable. It redeems our suffering. But it also redeems our mistakes. Okay, to quote, you're from Kung Fu Panda, Kung Fu Panda 2. There are no accidents, says it. There are no accidents. Yeah, that's the reality. Okay, if you think about children being born, is it, is it true that some people... Some people shouldn't get married. Okay, that's a hard one. Is there real mistakes there? You know, we really make actual mistakes. But then you think about a child that's born. That child isn't born from random. You know, that child has been an idea in God's mind eternally. Okay, that child with that temperament with that personality, with that story. Okay? So, so here's providence is, even within human decisions and mistakes, providence is working out all these things to good. Okay? I think that's remarkable. So let's, let's pray for a moment and actually bring our mistakes to God. How many, how many times do we often do that? Um, so, yeah, Lord... We just want to uh, think about this for a moment and, and take some time to bring all the mistakes that we've made uh, and take refuge here under the shadow of your wing. Maybe some of us are within those uh, mistakes, living them out now, or just, just gone through them. Some of us are yet to go through them, but thank you that we, we know that even our mistakes are redeemed by your providence, that you use all of these things to bring about your good and your glory in this world. Amen.
Um, lastly, so uh, it's hidden. It involves, includes human suffering. It includes human decisions. So it redeems our mistakes. I'm going to say number four, providence and the foreigner. Providence and the foreigner. Or providence and the outsider. So we see this with Ruth, don't we? Ruth is a foreigner. She's not a, she's not a Jew. She's a foreigner. And here, Boaz says, you've come here and you've taken refuge under the shadow of Yahweh. Okay? And here, Ruth experiences what it means to be redeemed by Yahweh, this foreigner. In terms of her story, right? So I say this uh, uh, sort of as my last point, right? There's two types of foreigners. There's one who's strayed and come back, and then there's one who's never been in the first place. So maybe I'm the maybe I'm the straying one. Maybe my heart has drifted. Okay, it's the natural inclination of the human heart to drift away from God. And I guess the call here is. To Come back to find, find refuge in the shadow of his wing as a foreigner, as someone who's straying. But let me say to the, to the one who's never been uh, in God's house, right, in Bethlehem, the place of Christ, uh, let's, let's, let's offer a, wel- a welcome or, or, a, or a call. Okay, there's refuge here. You can come from a, a world where everything is random, where, where, where nothing makes any sense. Where there's no good, no evil, no purpose, just, just random indifference um, into this life where God is using your suffering, your decisions, your mistakes for his glory. So I'm reaching out to the, uh, the foreigner, to the one on the outside, and I'm saying, why don't you come and take refuge here under the shadow of his wings? Yeah. Let's pray. As the, uh, as the band comes up, let's uh, bring all these things to God, and, and I'm going to actually bring the, the foreigner, the outsider, the, the one who's maybe come by providence to God as, as the band comes up. But uh, God, we, we thank you that uh, even as we're stray sometimes from Grace, sometimes we stray from you and, and drift away. Um, that there's shelter here, that there's, uh, there's uh, refuge here under the shadow of your wings. And I really pray for anyone who is here who uh, has never taken refuge here uh, under, under your wings, O oh God. And I really pray that, um, that you would call them uh, and they would see that this story points not just to David, a king of Israel, but to Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the one who came and died, not for himself, but for the sins of the world, that when we believe in Jesus, our sins can be redeemed and forgiven, ultimately in the cross, ultimately in Jesus. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Amen.